What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hi, I'm Justin King and welcome to the Blue Chip Academy. As a five-star recruit, all Big Ten corner, NFL vet, and Power 5 recruiting coordinator, I understand the emotions that go along with the recruiting process. The Blue Chip Academy is here to provide education, critical insights, and mentorship through the recruiting process for families and athletes alike. When athletes and their families have proper education and guidance, they're able to make better decisions and set themselves up for long-term success. Blue Chip Academy provides the resources and information that empowers athletes to create their own blue chip blueprint and take ownership of their careers. Blue Chip Academy exists because when athletes and their families are armed with the right information, they're able to make the decisions for themselves that positively impact their future. Again, I'll be your host, Justin King, and welcome to Blue Chip Academy. Welcome back to the Blue Chip Academy podcast, to the Blueprint to Success interview series, providing unique blueprints, tactical knowledge, best practices to navigate the critical points in the football ecosystem so athletes and parents can prepare a plan to a career path that any athlete can bank on. So our next guest, you know, Super Bowl champion, eight-year NFL vet and entrepreneur, also a great Penn State alum. His professional journey has gone many firsts, right? Like he's Super Bowl Record for the longest punt return, 61 yards, and Super Bowl 50 as an entrepreneur, our guest founded the Whitelist Aces NFT at the Centralized Community. It allows users to collect and trade unique digital assets with innovative utility usages. I'm excited to dive into this blueprint, man, dynamic uh, entrepreneur and football player, my old roommate, Penn State great and uh, eight-year NFL vet. Let's walk, welcome Jordan Norwood. <laughs> hey, Jess, appreciate the welcome, man, and it's, it's great to be on this on this podcast with you, brother. Thanks for man, having me. Thank, no, man, appreciate you jumping on, man. It's like, love telling the different stories and just always talk about everybody's path is different, right? You know, I come in, I'm talking about, it's Blue Chip Academy, we talking about being a desirable asset. You know what I mean? Sometimes sure. coming from the five-star standpoint, it's just like, you know, it's everyone thinks it's like, oh, a matter of the rankings and going through the process, but like, no, there's like critical factors that regardless of where you go through, you can maximize this elite sports ecosystem in the best way that fits you, right? So trying to equip right. these guys with the codes and tools to kind of accelerate, get an acceleration plan through this process. And you're one of the prime examples that I've seen going through the sports ecosystem. And I was like, okay, he gets it. And like how you're moving different things. So try to get this opportunity to give it, give it back a little bit. You know what I mean? Sure. So I met Jordan when I was getting recruited to Penn State. You know, his dad was Coach Norwood, you know, safety's coach my time at Penn State. And he also had a first view, I mean, a unique perspective on the intricacies of sports business. I was a coach's kid coming up, an athletic director's kid. And so as a kid going through the process, right, growing up, understanding it from a different perspective, I know I did. I can go into how you felt. What advice would you give to a prospect going through the process, knowing the business from your perspective, with your dad being a coach? Yeah, I mean, I, I think both you and I had really unique, um, you know, upbringings when it comes to sports. Uh, for me, obviously, my like you said, my dad was a college football coach, still is. Um, and so I was somebody that was on road trips like, hey, dad, can I get, you know, a little one of your little um, you used to have these notebooks, um, like real physical notebooks that you would turn the pages and they have the, you know, the guard center tackle. Um, you know, can I get your notebook so I can start drawing some plays? Um, and me and my older brother, Gabe, we would just on a road trip, we'd, we would just be drawing plays. I would draw an offensive play. He would draw a defensive play. We'd line and line them up next to each other and be like, Hey, I would have scored. I would have scored on that one. Um, so it, I mean, it's just little interactions like that, that, um, you know, I didn't think twice about, but I mean, obviously that's not something that many kids are doing. Um, you know, I was doing that when I was first, second grade, uh, knew what a cover two defense was and, um, you know, new routes in a route tree. Um, but I say that to say nowadays that that information is accessible. Um, you know, you know, there's you know, you can get in touch with a, a college coach or an athlete like myself and find that information out, uh, which probably wasn't as accessible when, you know, when we were growing up. Um, I don't know how I would have known that if, um, you know, if my dad weren't a college football coach. So um, so the advice with that is, you know, go get the information because it's out there, whether it's watching YouTube videos, 
um, or even just playing the video game and really looking at what these plays are on the video game, it's helpful. Understanding the schematics of the game. And that's like real interesting that you said it because I used to draw plays and all that different things as well. But like going through that, going through that process and you talking about going on road trips, moving around, you know, not really stationary in a place to like kind of build your brand and through all the recruiting process. So like jumping into the recruiting process as a coach's kid, how did that affect you going through the process? Because as a coach's kid, you're similar to like an army brat to an extent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it was interesting, to be honest. Um, so for me in high school, I went to uh, my first couple of year, years of high school in Texas while my dad was coaching at Texas Tech. Um, and then we moved up to, to State College and I finished up my high school career there. Um, so, so my, my recruiting process was, um, it was interesting. I mean, I actually didn't even play football my junior year. I got hurt. Um, so I, I didn't play until my senior year. Um, my dad, who was coaching at Penn State, um, intentionally decided to stay out of the recruiting process. Um, so any, you know, when they would look at recruits in meetings, he wouldn't mention my name at all. Um, so it was more of, uh, Joe Paterno actually was vouching for me and, and kind of on my side, same with Jay. Um, and then there was coaches and staff that weren't, they were like, you know, why would we, why would we even look at recruiting him? I was, I mean, I was 145 pounds my senior year of high school, uh, more of a basketball player than a football player. We had won the state championship in basketball the year before, um, so it was it was a really interesting recruiting dynamic. And, um, you know, obviously I ended up at Penn State. I ended up gray shirting, um, you know, basically at, at Coach Paterno's uh, request. I mean, not request, but, you know, he's, he made that happen. Uh, it awesome. wasn't my dad. It wasn't many of the assistant coaches weren't really uh, high on me. But uh, other than Penn State, I just had. Uh, you know, D2 and D3 opportunities, you know, if it was, if it weren't Penn State, I probably would have went to uh, Bucknell and played football and basketball. Wow. I mean, that's interesting. So you go Bucknell and play basketball and football. So like, that's the type of athlete we're talking about. So it's kind of dynamic when you're saying like, all right, I'm sure. undersized and I said, but I can go here and play basketball and football. So that just kind of shows, we'll get into that, but that's the type of athlete sure. uh, Jordan was. Can you talk a little bit about gray shirting? Cause I don't know if kids are, or athletes kind of understand that because guys now reclassify from a, um, a new grade and go back when there's like prep years where IMG has like a, a, a mid-year season. Talk about sure. the gray short time. I mean, from that standpoint, we have to kind of wait before you come into school. So basically what my gray shirt process was, well, first of all, the reason that I gray shirted uh, was because I was undersized. Um, and it could have been something on the scholarship numbers also, but um, like I said, I was, you know, 145 pounds coming out of high school my senior year. Uh, so that first fall, uh, which would have been 2008, um, no, 2004, sorry. So I graduated high school spring 2004, the fall 2004. I was not a full-time student. Uh, I went to Penn State. Uh, I paid my own tuition and books and room and board, uh, but I was just a part-time student. Uh, so my clock with the uh, NCAA Clearinghouse didn't start yet. Um, but that spring, you know, spring would have been 2005 uh, semester. That's when I was put on full scholarship. Uh, that's when I, you know, went on campus. Um, and I, I think that's when we started living together. Maybe it could have been. Say, I think that's when we all got there. Yeah. Um, yeah, because you started in the spring, too. Is that right? Yeah, I started in the spring. Yep. Right. So, um so, yeah, I mean, that's that's basically the process. Um, so spring, I start spring ball. The next fall, I actually, so fall t 2005, um, I could have, again, redshirted at that point. Uh, so I gray shirted and then I could have redshirted again, but um, I ended up playing. So um, and I ended up putting on 20 pounds also, which was useful. That developmental time is very important. Did you have any doubts yeah. going into Penn State? Because like that, that's a pretty big range, right? We talk about either going to Bucknell or Penn State. Like it's not like you were saying, oh, I'm going here or Ohio State or here or Pitt. You know what I mean? So how was your confidence level going into Penn State, knowing that if you weren't there, you'd be at Bucknell? Uh yeah, I, I mean I wasn't I wasn't super confident, to be honest. Um, you know, I, I was very aware that I was um, you know. 40 pounds away from where, where a typical college receiver should be. And, 
you know, three inches away also. So I was, I was pretty aware of uh, what was going on for me. It was, um, there was a coach at Penn state, the receivers coach uh, prior to me getting there was Kenny Carter and at a Penn state uh, like seven on seven camp, uh, Kenny Carter pulled me aside uh, this, the summer going into my senior year, I believe he pulled me aside and said, you know, Jordan, you have the skill level to play division one football. I, I just want you to know that. And so it was, it's literally that short, I mean, super short conversation. It wasn't even a conversation that he just said that and, and kept it moving. And I don't know what, um, I don't know why he said that to me, but, um, but it, that was the only thing I needed to hear um, for me to take the chance on myself. Um, and even, you know, I didn't have the confidence in myself to, uh, to succeed really. Um, you know, it just, it took somebody like, you know, like the wide receivers coach at Penn state to tell me that, uh, that I was good enough. And, you know, I mean, I had my dad telling me I was good enough, but it doesn't, right. it doesn't, it doesn't feel the same. It's like dad, come on, man. I know you're going right. to tell me. I'm, yeah. That's a, that's a great, that's a, that's a great point. Cause I mean, we're talking about you being undersized and all that different, all those different things. And sometimes people, shape this story in their mind about undersized players and different things of that nature. I'm just saying, I always try to balance it out. It was like, you got to recognize like purple dot players, which we call, you know, the guys that may be undersized and have an elite tra- skill set, but they have like a redeeming sure. quality out of elite, tra- uh, elite trait. So everything that Jordan's saying, his basketball team in high school, like they won the state championship in PA. So like he was like a key contributor. So we talk about just athletic ability. Right. I knew you from playing basketball, right? Just like a level of quickness and seeing you playing against that. How did that come up in the process? Do you think that's what kind of coaches saw where you like, man, you have the skill set to play at the next level? Or did yeah, you lean I, on that skill set? I mean, I guess like, I know I got elite quickness or body control and different things of that nature. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, tangibly in the recruiting process, um, you know, I didn't play much football. I mean, you know, going into my, like I said, going into my junior year, or going into my senior year, I hadn't played my junior year. Um, and then even my senior year of high school, I actually broke my thumb uh, the very first game of the season trying to tackle LaShawn McCoy. I broke my thumb. And, um, you know, so I had a cast on my hand, didn't play receiver. Uh, I still played defense that season, but didn't play receiver up until, um, you know, the, the last two or three games of the season my senior year. So um, a lot of what... Um, like Jay Paterno, Kermit Bugs, um, a lot of the reason that they were high on me coming to Penn State as a football player uh, was because what they saw on the basketball court. Um, and you can see, I mean, you can see the the quickness, you can see the hand-eye coordination. Um, but another thing you can see is the toughness and, you know, I guess the way I play defense and the way I went after loose balls um, on the basketball court. I mean, it, it all it all translates. Absolutely. And like this, so we know Jordan had bunnies and he would dunk on you. Like if he had to. <laughs> <laughs> that too. That too. That, that too. That too. Right. We're talking right. about the other side. So like when I had that context, man, cause you know, I would argue with coaches about stuff and like a player might be undersized and they'll like throw a profile out there. And I'm like, nope, that's not it. Like you don't know what that type of athleticism at that size is supposed to look like. Right. Like, or whatever it may be. Like if someone lacks a level of top end speed and how does that, the ratio to body control, short area quickness, hands and all those other things balance it out. And it's just like, be surprised when cats are like, Oh, but X, I'm like, nah, I know what that looks like, man. Cause me and Dion were talking about like that undersized right. thing. It's just like, man, this is taking everybody up top and it's always open. So <laughs> jumping into like college, man. So you weren't technically local going to Penn State, which is like people don't know. It's a, it's a unique ecosystem, right, in college football. You're in the middle of central Pennsylvania. But you were one of the few people that kind of came from that area that senior year. How was that transition going to high school and state college and then kind of going across the street to Penn State? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was an easier transition uh, right. than was there a transition for, for me. Uh, it wasn't much of a transition, you know, I mean, okay. I, I, I was coming home two or three times a week, um, you know, eating at home. I was still seeing my parents, um, you know, and, and for me as a, you know, kind of a, a more quiet kid, as you know, um, I don't know if the transition would have been as smooth had I gone anywhere else, you know, even if I went to Penn State, but went to a branch campus, right? Like, it's that physical, geographical um, you know, nearness that I had to my family and, 
you know, and my siblings that that made the transition a little easier for me. So, um, so that that part definitely helped. I don't I don't know if things would have turned out the no, way that, they did had I gone further away. That makes a good point, man. Just from the standpoint of not that trans that super transition period that a lot of guys go through when they get to Penn State, whether they're coming from D.C., Virginia Beach, and it's just like whether it's a culture shock, trying to get in, you know, understanding the the mechanisms around the campus. But a lot of people that do come from state college and transition into Penn State typically have success and transition to the next level. Sure. We can go through it. You got you, Nick Stupar, Nate Stupar, and then you have, you know, there's just other guys that come from state yeah. college that people don't know that they're successful. And I think that's like something that you point out from a critical factor, just like the comfort, right? Because we always talk about when guys pick schools, like you can go to a school and make an emotional decision like, oh, this university, the food, this, that, and the third, and you get there and right outside the ecosystem, it's like, I'm from the East Coast and I'm now right. I'm in... I don't know, New Mexico or something. It's just like different right. beyond that. And it's like that. I've seen a lot of guys, even when I start working back at Penn State, where the culture almost, the culture of the surrounding area kind of inhibits them from being comfortable and being able to perform on the field. And just given that real, just that real evaluation, self-evaluation of like knowing who you are and like what ecosystem you feel comfortable in. Because it's pretty dynamic when you get into these college ecosystems right. specifically. So, I mean, did you have a welcome to the Penn State moment? Um, on the football field, definitely. Uh, yeah, that's what I, I'm I, I, you get there. Yeah, like. <laughs> yeah. My my welcome to Penn State. Uh, there's probably two of them. One was, um, you know, one of our first practices my freshman year. Um, you know, during preseason camp uh, at the stadium, I was catching punts just on like this, you know, on the scout team, and Tamba Holly just come I mean just run straight through me like I wasn't even there and and you know Tom but just like I do he did it on accident he literally didn't see me but he was running full speed he's like super apologetic helping me off the ground peeling me off the ground uh so that so that's number one and then just from the uh just from the standpoint of you know what it takes to to make it through preseason camp um just my welcome to Penn State, welcome to Joe Paterno moment was was tweaking my hamstring and Joe just walking through the the training room and just tearing me up, you know, calling me, you know, all of the sorts of names that he he thought would motivate me to get up off the off the training room table and back into practice. But um, yeah, just, you know, those two things are, are just just memories that I have that I'll cherish um, and, and kind of laugh at looking back. But both of those moments made me want to quit football. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny because you know, I'll talk me to hit. And I mean, that's definitely one. I mean, we play, I remember we played Florida State in that game. That was so physical. Oh, I was geez. like, man, put me on defense, dog. He played hit, <laughs> right. man. <laughs> but then but that point that you're talking about when you get hurt in college football, man, it's like a real. It's like a real mental warfare. It's like oh, a whole man. different thing of how the intention kind of shifts. The rehab process is hard. Like it, it's you, you feel bad mentally, physically, everything's right. kind of there. It's just like, you ready yet? No? All right. Like, see, you know what I mean? It's just that I know that was tough for me because I got I hurt my foot when I got there in the spring, and it was just like, man, this is yeah, this is this Nothing is like being on being on those fan bikes with, with JT during practice. Shout out JT I mean, and Jeremy and all the boys and, and B. You know, you guys always used to put us through it. It's, it made us strong. Now it's all good. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> did you did you, once you were at Penn State and you kind of were looking around at everyone else? Did you like notice that you had any critical advantages from being local and having your dad on staff? Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there was there was some tangible advantages. Um, you know, even from the off the field kind of having that support system um you know readily available i mean there was i mean i remember sitting outside the locker room after practice during specifically during two days just like man is this for me this is difficult this is hard right um and so yeah being able to walk down the hall and and knock on my dad's door and be like is is it going to get easier like or or what's going on um i mean that's an incredible advantage right and um, so there's that part. And then in terms of the actual football, um, I definitely looked around and realized pretty quickly that I had some skill sets that, um, that, you know, Kenny Carter was right. I, I can play at this level. 
um, you know, even though I'm a, a 150 pounds, 160 pounds at that point, um, you know, there's ways my skill set leans itself to to succeeding. Um, you know, as long as somebody doesn't get their hands on me, uh, which I'm pretty good at avoiding, um, <laughs> then I'll be all right. But once Alan Zemitis got his hands on me, uh, it was a big issue. The, right. whole, the whole play was shut down for me. <laughs> Hey Z, man, that's funny. You come back here because like those guys were used to battle and practice and all that. And like just to give context, right. what you're saying, like it wasn't a nor- that camp wasn't a normal camp. Like that that first 05 camp we went to the Orange Bowl because they were. I mean, come to find out, yeah. they were trying to break us, right? Because they knew we had to play, and like the older guys were getting ready to do what they needed to do. But that was definitely right. one of the hardest camps of my football career. I mean, right. I, I can't even talk about what we were doing. I mean, whatever. It was a lot of, run, <laughs> right. a lot of running. Let's just say that. We were, <laughs> right. we were running. But he took care of us through the season, man. Like, hey, got 46 minutes on the field. Go fast. Boom, boom, boom. Get up out of right. there. So we were fresh, right. ready to go. So we get into the NIL stuff, man. In college, we had like a unique little little group, man. What would, what would it have been your NIL strategy in college, given like the climate that it is today? Oh, man. what a, What a question. Um, just get the idea circulated for some of the guys that might be listening because we, we man we saw a lot of different avenues when we were there man because I always wish we would have we had a serious group licensing opportunity with that Fab Four our freshman right. year when everybody was going off people were selling they pretty much branded it that way already we could right. have <laughs> did anything but I know you yeah, always I mean, have the we, entrepreneurial spirit we probably would have been I mean so first of all uh, you mentioned the Fab Four um, I mean I know that you've, you've talked about probably the ESPN, the magazine article. Um, I think all of that leans itself to rock nation. Like we would have been involved with Jay-Z rock aware. Um, you know, we already had Larry Johnson who was, uh, who was just coming out of Penn state, who was all the way in with, with rock nation. So, um, you know, us throwing up this little dynasty symbol (laughs) in that ESPN, the magazine, that would have that would have came with some yeah that would have came with a few few dollars and cents uh, would have made a lot of sense. So. I forgot we were throwing up the dynasty sound. I mean, it was heavy in there too. Nobody You're right. <laughs> I think I think we were. I mean, we, no, we, were, we were all I, about it. I looked it. at the picture. Yeah, I know Dion was for sure. He was strong with it. You know, right? No, uh, that's real. Yeah, we would we would had we would had Jay Z and and Beyonce sitting you know fifty yard line or on the field at our games. Definitely. So you guys know, like that's the type of movie it was when we were kind of coming in that that freshman year. It was just it was a it was a scene, man. It was a time. What a time to be alive! Like, yeah. what are you, what are your thoughts on the NIL, uh, like the regulation of everything that's going on? Uh, well, I mean, I love I love it. Um, I mean, as a whole, generally speaking, um, you know, obviously, or maybe not obviously, but I do feel like things need to be reeled in uh, regulation wise. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's just. I think more so for the safety of young men and women who are, you know, who have a high earning potential as, you know, as they should. Um, But the safety of, um, you know, people taking advantage of them uh, financially um, or doing something with their name, image, likeness that, um, you know, that can harm them down the road. Um, So I I do think that more regulation um, is needed and will come, but, um, but I think, you know, these student athletes deserve, you know, their piece of the pie. For sure. And that's like the double edged sword of everything, right? When, as soon as we got into the space of athletes getting money at the end of the day, it becomes the free market. So you can't, you kind of, you know, it's the thing, the bad things that come with the free market and the good things that come with the free market. You're not a lot of right. guys. One thing that I noticed from working in college sports was like a lot of guys think they're more valuable than they are, right? So you got to balance that where it's like, hey, there's not that opportunity there. You have to kind of build your own brand. And just like, to be honest with you, just the support within football programs to kind of handle that and everything and like balance the stuff on the field, it is pretty dynamic and loose, but and it leaves those spaces for the pariahs of different, you know, agencies and everything starts to trickle down because now you got guys getting represented in high school. So like the stuff that guys were right. dealing with, we were dealing with runners in college, you know, high school cats at, you know, top high schools now are dealing with it. And it's just exactly. it's an intro into the business in a real, real way. If you're not, you know, buttoned up tight right? and go some different, different ways. But so at your time at Penn state and you get ready to leave, you I mean, everybody has that different transition to the NFL. Some people get drafted, some people, 
you know, do the free agency route. Can you talk to me a little about your transition into the NFL? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, well, first of all, I mean, it probably wasn't until um, like kind of towards the end of my junior year um, into my senior year that I even was thinking NFL or realized that 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 was, you know, a tangible next step for me. Um, you know, when you and, um, and forgive me, cause I don't even remember the exact process, but when you're like yeah. starting to, or allowed to shop for agents or allowed to declare for the NFL, right. Early. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and people are asking, you know, are, you know, is Justin going to leave early? Um, I'm like, Oh goodness. I mean, I, I guess, I mean, if Justin should be thinking about leaving early, I guess, I should at least be thinking about going to the NFL after my senior year. Right. Um, so yeah, it, it was just, it was just, it just, for whatever reason, it wasn't like readily available in my head, but, um, but yeah, what ended up happening with me, um, you know, ended up going undrafted, um, you know, by the time my senior year rolled around, I was still undersized. I was, you know, try, fighting for 170 pounds. Um, but still, I mean, like a four six forty guy, so not super fast either. I didn't have any of the measurables, basically. Um, you know, <laughs> not the. I mean, the bench press wasn't measurable at all. I couldn't. What were, even, what were your measurables going into the NFL? Like your official measurables, like when they came to do the like combine. Um, I think my combine time on the forty was like a four five six. Okay. Um, at my pro day, I ended up running a four four eight. Okay. Uh, I don't know who timed that, but I haven't been able to duplicate <laughs> that one at any point. Um, as far as bench press, uh, I still to this day have never bench pressed 225, not even once. Um, so I, I, I have never even done that before. So that was not even, you know, there's just a line crossed out through that one. And the height and weight? Uh, uh, the height and weight, I was uh, 5'10", uh, like one. Probably by the by the time combine came around, I think I was closer to one seventy five. Um, so yeah, not super fat. Like I mean, five, my, my 10, quickness one, was good. I mean, you're going downplay the quickness because it'd be five ten one one seventy uh, and play eight years in the NFL. We got it. Sure. You know, there's a there's a there's a, there's something that you're leaving out. So we're going to get into that right. a little bit. Yeah, a thirty nine inch vertical. And then um, I didn't do the the three cone at the uh, at the combine, but my three cone was really good. Um, I want to say like four four two. Is that a good good three cone? Something or like it might have been sub four even. Yeah, yeah okay. I think it was three nine, fours. but I didn't want to yeah. overshoot. I think I had a three <laughs> nine, like a three nine five three cone or a four cone. Um, so yeah, obviously. Yeah. I don't even know what the I don't even know what the good numbers are, but nah. I mean, getting getting the job done at the end of the day, man. So like, right. you get to the NFL, everything's moving around. You had your second stint at Cleveland, you end up with Denver. Take me through that season, like playing uh, playing there with Peyton and that whole thing, and then obviously the punt return in the Super Bowl. Like, I mean, we're talking about like moments that you dream of as a kid. Like, right. take me take me through that because you're talking about a five ten. Guy that's 170 pounds, like you said, four six, and like the different obstacles to get into the NFL. Now you get to this point. What year was that? Year six for you? Uh, yeah, it was. It was year year seven. Year seven. Year seven. And you get to year seven. It's like now you're in this moment. Can you take me through that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's it's. I mean, certainly a blessing, and like you said, at t- times that I'll never forget, specifically Super Bowl. But um, yeah, going into year seven, I hadn't even played a whole lot of football still at that point. Um, I had done, you know, a year and a half on the practice squad in Cleveland and Philadelphia. Um, I had been active in Cleveland um, a couple years. I spent two years on a, on an injured reserve um, on IR in, in Cleveland and uh, and in Denver. I had spent a year out of football completely just from getting cut and not picked up. So um, so even by the time that year came around, um, you know, I'm still fighting for a roster spot. Um, you know, and, you know, I obviously make the team and, uh, you know, line up week one, first play of the season uh, with Peyton Manning at the quarterback and Demarius and uh, Emmanuel Sanders at the other receivers. Um, so I'm, I'm just now feeling like, you know, six years, seven years into my NFL career um, that I've actually, you know, 
made it, you know. Made so, uh, so that whole season was was incredible. And then to you know eventually go to the Super Bowl um, and not be the starting punt returner the entire season, um, not be the starting punt returner going into the Super Bowl game either. Um, it was Emmanuel Sanders, and um, you know he kind of just you know that particular play. He was like, hey, you know, um, you know we, we have a punt block on, so you know Jordan, you want to go back and get this one. Um, which is, is, is kind of the way it goes. You know, I don't have the jurisdiction to go put myself in the game, but somebody like Emmanuel Sanders, um, you know, can bow out and say, Hey, I want to focus on this last, last drive of the half, uh, which is something that happens as a punt returner. It's hard to, it's hard to focus on catching a punt. If you have important offensive plays coming up, um, you know, punt returning is just one of those positions you need to be locked in. Um, all the way right um so anyways i go back there in place of emmanuel and um you know like emmanuel said it was it was a punt block so it was likely going to be a fair catch and should have been a fair catch maybe uh in retrospect um but you know i I thought i had a little bit more time than i did didn't fair catch it uh and the you know the carolina panthers the coverage team all thought assumed that i fair caught it um because there was about six of them around me um, but, you know, caught the ball, took a little bump and, you know, just, just ran for it and, um, you know, ends up, ends up being the longest punt return in Super Bowl history, which is pretty cool. Uh, even though I didn't score, but, uh, it's a fun play, a fun memory. No, that's a great memory. That'd be on fun, man. It's like playing eight right. years in the league is so rare. So first of all, congrats on a great career. What would you attribute, yeah, you know I mean, to the beating the odds and the success rates in the NFL and end up making it eight years? You know, you see a lot of different people, whether they get injured, whether it's things outside of the field, kind of get distracted and then kind of, you know, take away sharpening your skills and continue to get better. I mean, and then you got just injuries sometimes. Um, What would you think attribute to your success of eight years? Yeah, well, I think part of it, uh, to be honest, is uh, being undrafted, uh, to be frank. I mean, I think had I gotten drafted, which I wanted so badly at the time, um, you know, the, the expectation would have been higher out of me. Um, you know, my price tag as a player would have been higher, um, throughout my career. So actually, you know, being undrafted is actually something that allowed me to, um, you know, I played at the minimum, uh, salary pretty much all my entire career up until my final season. Um, so being a cheap player was, uh, something that worked to my advantage, um, and then in terms of the type of player I was, uh, just being very coachable, um, you know, going back to being a coach's kid and and always, you know, almost being a second quarterback on the field, you know, breaking the huddle. And if, you know, another receiver needed to know what to, what to do, uh, they usually ask me instead of asking Peyton or, um, you know, whoever the quarterback was. So having another person on the field that um, you know, knew the X's and O's and, um, you know, could help from that standpoint, uh, was it advantageous? Um, and then just the, when it comes to skill set, just being, uh, consistent, uh, for the most part, being somebody that, um, you know, could catch the football, could get, get open on third down. Um, you know, having that skill set is something that, um, you know, pushed my career along because, you know, typically somebody says, uh, you know, special teams, you know, um, you know, undrafted, you got to play special teams. I actually didn't play special teams until my last year in the NFL. Um, you know, I wasn't at gunner. I couldn't do gunner. I wasn't strong enough. I would get pushed out of bounds into the other, other teams, water, water station. Um, you know, the only thing that I was useful for on, on special teams was punt return and kick return. And I just didn't do those things. Um, I was useful for it, but I was useful in a backup role. I just wasn't gotcha. fast enough um, or yeah. to be the be, to be the starter. I um, mean, I didn't do that until my last year. So um, that's, that's that's big that you touched on. Like that elite intelligence will keep you in the league, right? Being able to do those different sure. things and having the coaches trust that you're going to be where you want to be. Like I don't think a lot of uh, general public understands that you know coaches they look at the game almost like scientists, right? So like when they're trying sure. to put their experiments together, like they want the things that react the way that they have right. it drawn up. And that's like the first level of even being able to 
get on the field if you're not considered special, right? Like, you know, you got your right. special guys that don't really have to, I mean, they break all the rules, not break technically the rules, but the rules of a defense, right. whatever is right, wrong, you know, players make plays and all that good stuff. But the more right. you can do too, right? When you talk about in the league, being a person that you can come to, that you know all the plays, you're doing uh, different positions. And like you said, not playing special teams, but being that value add where it's like, well, I'm comfortable if this person goes out, Jordan's, we know okay. he's going to catch the ball, he's going to do X, Y, and Z, and move along accordingly. So I think that's a big piece that people need to understand, even when you get to that professional space, college space, and high school, is like being that desirable asset. And that means continuing to sharpen those different aspects in your game on and off the field because, you know, looking for that, looking for any reason to get rid of you at that point, right? We'll start to get here, <laughs> <Absolutely. seven. laughs> so it's like you bring that value, man. It's a, it's a big piece. I'm going to do a quick read. One second here. Cool. This quick read. Yeah, this episode of Blueprint to Success interview series is brought to you by LIG Sports Group, an executive sports consulting firm where we focus on proactive talent acquisition, specialty sourcing, strategic partnerships, strategic partnerships and business development and career development and consulting, mastering the different critical points of the sports ecosystem starting in high school, college, and the corporate ranks with executive um, talent acquisition services. You guys just check in. Anything you need, doing free consults for the recruiting process and Blue Chip Academy, and the link will be below. And we are jumping back into it. Yeah, man. So we just talk about like the transition and everything from the post football, you know, entrepreneurial journey. How was the transition from the game for you? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, first of all, I, I'm still transitioning. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know that. I'm not sure that it'll there'll ever be a definitive moment where I'm, you know, beyond sports or beyond my my playing career. There's always, um, you know, something that I lean on, whether it's a relationship for my playing career or an actual skill set that, um, you know, that I need. So, uh, so yeah, I, I finished playing officially 2017. Uh, 2016 was my last season playing. Uh, re- officially retired, I guess, in the spring of 2017. So uh, nearly five years ago or more than five years ago now, uh, which is crazy. But um, yeah, a lot of my transition for me has been, um, generally speaking, moving away from uh, involvement with football. Um, you know, I didn't get into coaching um, or being an agent or, or anything like that. Um, really kind of dove back into some of my passions from uh, from my major at Penn State, I was an advertising and graphic design major. Um, so kind of digging back into, you know, the creativity. Uh, I did photography for my first couple of years um, as I transitioned out of the NFL. Um, and then now I've, I've kind of dove headfirst into into being an entrepreneur and just uh, just starting too many businesses, basically, uh, is, is what it comes down to. So, um you know, like you mentioned, into the the Web three and NFT blockchain space uh, with a company called Traitworks uh, that launched the whitelist uh, NFT project, um, and then have a, a holistic wellness company called Magic Wellness uh, that I own and operate here in Denver, Colorado, um, and then have the photography business too. So um, keeping it going, some, man. Some some real estate, but uh, love it, yeah. love it, love it. Did you always know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Uh, yeah, I think, I think so. I don't, I I never, I probably never labeled it as such, but, um, you know, as you know, in, in college, I was somebody that was, you know, Hey, you know, you want me to make some, a poster for you? Um, so I was, uh, I would, I had the graphic design, you know, skill set. So I would grab pictures and make posters for, uh, different guys on the team. Um, you know, and I think I was, I don't know if I should say this, but I I had the I had the Netflix uh, at the time your Netflix subscription. Uh, you would get DVDs in the mail, uh, so I would uh, unfortunately um, copy CD, copy DVDs, and 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 hand them out um, only for a very short period of time. So I realized it was wrong, and I stopped doing that. Well, it's funny you say that because <laughs> when I first got to Penn State, and the first guy I remember, t- I'm probably dating myself, but that I. I, the first iPods had come out, and I don't even know if Joy remembers, right. but I remember I loaded it up with a hard drive of all the music from you. It was like twenty yeah, songs. Go. I was like, "Oh man, we're good." Like, so right. yeah, you that's that's consistent, <laughs> right? Right. 
No, that's that's awesome. Like, did you have a sense before it was going to be over, or did you? Was it like a surprise when you were like, "All right, I, I'm gonna move on to the next thing"? Because I think that purgatory or that that right. people falling kind of like hurts that transition a little bit instead of trying to you know accelerate into the next piece or getting into those gap uh, development right. aspects to feel confident and revert back to your athletic instincts, right? To be able to be competitive and be confident yeah. in what you're doing in that next step. Right. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, fortunate, fortunately for me, I, I, I definitely retired on my own terms. Um, in terms of the actual like transition um, time-wise, it's probably my last, you know, during my last uh, training camp is when I was like, okay, this is, this is going to be my last year. Like, you know, I I, and, yeah, I, I mean, unfortunately, I think some of that showed in my play. Okay. Um, in, in my last year on the field, um, it didn't really show in my effort, but, um, the way things turned out, um, you know, showed in my play just a little bit. Um, but I had already started to transition in, into photography a little bit. Um, my, my wife, uh, girlfriend at the time had bought me a camera for my birthday. So I, I started to, um, like I was a guy that was taking pictures, like on a road game, everybody in their suits in front of the plane, they're like, hey, Jordan, can you can you, you know, get a flick of me and, um, you know, Peyton real quick. So I would be uh, I would actually take pictures uh, as we got onto the plane. Uh, I would pop my laptop open, stick the memory card in and edit pictures real quick uh, before we even took off, uh, like in that little 10 minute period where everybody's getting situated. And I would send everybody their pictures so they could post them on social media, um, you know, right before we pick, we took off. And that was. Um, yeah, that was, I mean, while I was playing, so I was a player, I wasn't a photographer, right. but, um, but that definitely transitioned me into, um, you know, my first couple of years after playing, uh, was full time, me and my wife shooting photography. So oh, that's was, amazing. How you cool. start, yeah. You start enacting those things while you're playing. And that's like, that's very interesting because you talk about, I mean, wanting to be entrepreneur, just going back to your, you know, your just true passions. And I always see that whether it was like when we're in college, Mike Robb interviewing people, right? Like him doing the broadcast journalism, then right. seeing him go to you know, to uh, NFL Network or even Spice when he used to come back. And it was like, he was a act like a, not say a clown, but he was entertaining back then. But, you know, right. you see where he's at now and just always trying to figure out those, those pieces or those crumbs from when you're going through the process. Because like you said, you were always a creative to an extent and diving into that. In the NFL, like taking pictures of the Denver Broncos with Peyton Manning, like those are some pretty high profile pictures when you think about it, like just the digital assets that you can capture and give right. you probably the confidence to even do a business afterwards, right? Like, I mean, I've, you know, I've, I took pictures of the top players out here. Was that like a key to getting on the right track during the transition, you think? Was it like that time that you kind of started splitting your brain, like, all right, I know I'm playing football, I'm getting ready for a game, but I can still take these pictures and do what I need to do? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, later on in my career, I mean, as I felt more comfortable on the field, um, you know, more comfortable with playbooks and my abilities and, and all like and things like that, you know, it freed up more time for me to to be able to do those things and um, and re re-identify what those passions are. Um, and it and it looks like a lot of different things, right? I mean, if your passion is football, then what does that what does that look like? you know, post-career, does that mean that during your football career, you should be volunteering at the Boys and Girls Club and uh, doing football camps and, um, you know, coaching or not coaching, but volunteering your time to, um, you know, to help young kids learn the game? Um, You know, for me, it looked like picking up a camera and learning how to, um, you know, shoot photography. So, um, yeah, I think it it definitely helped. I mean, it, it really came down to identifying what that passion piece right. uh, for me was and, and what it was going to be after the game. Most definitely. With that, following up on that, what was the hardest part of that transition to yeah. play, from player to entrepreneur, right? Like when you finally were like, all right, this is the hat that I'm wearing. I'm not playing football anymore. Like right. I'm going to do my photography. What are, like, what are the main obstacles that you had to overcome? Yeah, I'm, I'm still overcoming some of those obstacles. Um, I think the main one is, is just the structure, uh, the structure of organized sports at a high level um, was very comforting to me. Um, you know, knowing that I was going to go to the weight room at this time, 
um, you know, go to meetings at this time and that the goal for this, you know, the goal for me bench pressing this amount is so that I can bench press this amount the next time I go in there, um, you know, going to practice and having a call sheet of every single play that's going to be called in practice. Uh, those things don't quite transition to being a photographer, um, especially with your spouse. You know, <laughs> if, if we were going to shoot and this happened several times, if we're going to shoot a wedding, um, you know, I'm like, hey, babe, you need uh, you need every single shot that you're going to take. You need it um, on a little um, on a little card that's attached to your belt buckle so that you can just check them off as you go. You need, you know, how many memory cards do you have? You need six memory cards just in case one fails. Um, you need 18 batteries in your left pocket so that you like, I'm just way too much. You yeah. know, I mean, not just for, you know, my relationship with my wife, that's definitely too much for a successful relationship. Uh, but from a business standpoint, you know, it's just, I was being way too intense, um, for what it takes to be a photographer, um, even an entrepreneur in general, there's not many situations just that you need that intensity, like where you need, you know, when you step into the lines of a football field on a Sunday night, you need mind, body, soul, you know, everything just there, present, no distract. Like you need to be there to catch a punt in the NFL. You need to be all there. Um, but in, I haven't found much else that you need that much focused intensity um and i don't know if there's anything else no, that's, that's a great point that's a great point that you're saying because i used to compare it to where like there's a level of like you said the emotional aspect the, the tactical stuff of playing football like kind of what you're saying like the your heightened your your senses are heightened so much so that it's really hard to transition and not bring that same type of fervor to anything that you're doing but sometimes once you can learn how to control it right where there's right. confidence in what you're doing and like okay this is how it is because everything reverts back to football and it's like, that's not always there. I remember the first time I got a CC'd on an email and I'm like, wait, you don't trust me? What's going on? Like, <laughs> that's not what we do. You don't go tell the coach after we discuss. Like, we're on it. It's us. Right? Right. But you start discuss, discovering the different things and Dion talked about it. It was that lack of fear of the unknown or being able to even get better, right? Just dealing with Glassdoor with the, uh, another company I'm dealing with and they have a, they're tr trying to go about it with having a radical transparency in their, in their culture. Right. So just seeing, well, how everyone else is performing, how everyone else is being paid and just like that critical advantage of an athlete. Like when you get done performing, putting your heart and soul out to it, out there, like an artist, like a photographer, right. I'm, I'm an artist and I'm creative about my stuff. Like in football, that's the same thing. And then you're going in there and you're being judged or being corrected amongst your peers. So everyone right. kind of knows where everyone stands. You kind of have a respect level for what's what, you know, there's like a line, that right. can't cross about dealing with your stuff. But like stepping outside of that, you have to like formulate it differently because just the construct outside of football is different, but there's a lot of advantages once you get it in place. Absolutely. So I love that you said that. Like, cause it's, cause you think, all right, if I'm hitting all the stuff that I'm doing in football, it's just going to be just as efficient outside. It's just like, not, 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 not all the time. I mean, I'm running into that. I, I have, had, yeah. I've had run into that sometimes, but you know, I'm getting better as well. <laughs> it's it's a go. different, it's a different culture, right. That, um, you know, that definitely gives a lot of advantage, I think, to having been an athlete and just the way you approach tasks and getting the tasks done promptly, like things like that. Um, that, you know, at, at some points, honestly, I've had, higher expectations from people than um, maybe I should have uh, just because of, you know, a sports background too. Like, you know, this is your role. You know, I play wide receiver. This is what I do. I'm going to do only this and do it well. Um, and, you know, that doesn't, doesn't, I found that it doesn't always translate into, um, you know, co a corporate structure, um, you know, one-to-one. -one. You're absolutely right. It's just like yeah. finding those gaps to kind of fill in with that, you know, like you say, the passion or what you're kind of curated to do to an extent. Did you have any college connections that helped you through that transition process or when you started to become an entrepreneur? Like, was there connections back to Penn State and from the, like the strategic partnerships to kind of build what you were building? I know you were a photographer with your wife, but once you started right. to scale. Uh, yeah, yeah. There there was always, um, always contacts, right? I mean, our, I mean, first of all, our alumni network is is huge, one of the biggest in the nation. So, 
Um, you know, once I once I picked up a camera, I remember, you know, reaching out to Nabil Mark, who was one of the one of the local photographers uh, in State College, uh, who, you know, my family became friends with became friends with from being local there. But, um, you know, he gave me just the quick ones and twos of, um, you know, how do you operate a camera? What, like, you know, he got me off the ground. Um so yeah, I mean there there's just been been tons of networking opportunities and uh for me it's mostly been on LinkedIn. Um you know, even if I don't know who that individual is, um who to reach out to, I I, I usually look for the Penn State alum tag on LinkedIn and say, you know, oh, ping ping somebody with that. Nah, that's that's pretty that's that's good. That is a, that's a key for guys that do go to Penn State, look for that and does open does open doors. Can you, so we talk about the creative aspect from your standpoint and that was your passion and now you transition, not transition, but grown into having your own NFT community. Um, can you give me a little overview of the whitelist aces and the listeners so they can get involved and learn more about it? Sure. So the whitelist aces is a membership and lifestyle brand really. Um, so these um, ace characters, we call ourselves aces are a piece of art that you can um, purchase, which also represents your membership. Uh, and the membership benefits are all sports related for the most part. Uh, it's access to sporting events, um, to VIP kind of sports experiences. And, and really what the cool thing is with this membership and it being done through NFTs is that um, the members get a say in what happens. So, uh, so we sold all these NFTs back in January, 10,000 NFTs were all sold. Uh, so I don't have any NFTs to sell anyone. Uh, if you want one, you actually have to buy them from somebody that owns them. Um, but what we did was create a big uh, treasury that the members vote on uh, what, what gets, how it gets invested, how it gets spent, how it gets saved, whatever. Um, so one thing that we did um, recently was acquire a big three basketball team. Uh, and the Big Three Basketball League is a league started by Ice Cube, three-on-three basketball, um, mostly uh, former NBA guys, uh, some guys that probably will transition back into the NBA, um, you know, after a quick summer stint in the Big Three Basketball League. Uh, you know, guys like Mario Chalmers, Michael Beasley. Um, we acquired the team called Power, which is um, uh, captained by Katino Mobley, who was a, a player that I looked up to and, and wanted to be like on the basketball court growing up. Uh, him and Steve Francis played together in Houston. So, um, so yeah, that, I mean, that's kind of the whitelist in a nutshell. Um, our members actually voted on us acquiring, um, you know, this big three power basketball team with our, with our treasury, uh, which is pretty cool. That's extremely cool, man. Even from the standpoint of just the sports partnerships in the game that I'm playing, I saw you guys had a, did a deal with a um, WNBA player. Right. And just like with everything going to NIL and just making that transitional transition into that space. I mean, like the community purchasing the big three. I, I love the just the league, con, not the league concept, but just the league business model. When I was at the XFL, yeah. that was just one of right. the fan engaging models that we looked at. And just to see what they were building over there is actually very impressive. Like, and it's kind of under the radar, right. but like for you guys to go in there and purchase a, t purchase a team is very visionary and it's pretty tight, especially in that NFT community and how you got the community together. So kudos to that. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's really tight. What is your, what's your strategy with the sports partnerships? I mean, this is a little off topic, but I mean, it's on topic, but uh, like signing individual players. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. I mean, well, first of all, we're, we're definitely learning some things as we go. Right. Um, you know, it's such a new space, but um, so the whitelist itself uh, the, the community, the membership, um, you know, it, it's really structured more as like a nonprofit, um, you know, not, not a charity, but, um, but a nonprofit who's any revenue, uh, whether it be from big three, whether it be from merchandise, um, any revenue really just goes back into the, that treasury in order to provide more, uh, benefits to the community, um, you know, to our membership. So it's pretty interesting when we start to look at uh, relationships with individual athletes, uh, whether it be D'Erica Hamby, who's the, that WNBA, WNBA player, um, 
and giving her opportunities to create NFTs and create value uh, for her, um, you know, for her community, for her followers and fans, like on a personal level. Um, but the cool thing with with our membership, we have like about 4,000 members worldwide, is that if we do bring somebody on as an ambassador like Dierka Hamby um, or an NL, NIL opportunity, that individual is immediately getting 4,000 fans, um, you know, 4,000 people that may not have known who they were um, before um, or may not have watched the WNBA before either, but they're immediately engaged. They're immediately like, oh, Dierka Hamby is one of us. Oh, I'm going I'm to watch this WNBA game. I'm going to retweet her tweets. Um, so, that, so there's a lot of value in that, right? And um, so looking for the right opportunities from an individual athlete standpoint uh, is going to be really cool. And, and we're continuing to do that. Um, and it gives a lot of, you know, kind of social equity from like a social media standpoint, um, you know, a lot of value there to that individual athlete uh, just by, you know, gaining, you know, thousands of fans kind of overnight if they, uh, you know, decide to be a part of our community. I love it, man. It's ingenious. When you just talk about like these different collectives that are coming out or even, I mean, I see a collaboration just to throw it out there in the ecosystem, but like with Lockdown U in the, in the whitelist, yeah. right? Which is a Lockdown U, which is the group license that we're creating at Penn State around the DBs and first uh, implementation of like the Blue White Collective, which is like sports properties and brands in a, a group licensing structure to kind of have that authentically curated space within uh, sports property, for example, awesome. Penn State, and kind of identifying those and matching up with those different, you know, opportunities and different things of that nature. But I love where you're going with everything because there's a lot of value in that, and it's a gap in the industry when you just talking about sure. NIL space, athletes just getting exposure, and just the level of community, right? When you're talking about building your network outside of sports, or like right. people that kind of know what you're doing or uh, entrepreneur and endeavors in the future. Right. So let's talk about your process a little bit. How do you know when you're ready to jump into like a new business venture, like especially innovative and new spaces like an NFT community? Oh, man. Um, you know, at, the, at this point, you know, it's, it's, it's mostly asking my wife if I'm allowed to, uh, <laughs> to, to be perfectly frank. Um, I mean, my, my mind is like a thousand miles per hour. Um, you know, I've probably thought of a couple of businesses during our call just now and a couple more partnerships that, um, you know, I should I should go after. But, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's really identifying, you know, what what is the end game here? Like, what am I trying to get to? And and is, you know, is this business that I'm trying to start? Is this, um, you know, project or, um, you know, is this pushing me towards that? Um, that kind of end goal, the end game. And, um, and that's, and that's really what I've been drilling into here, you know, lately. Um, you know, I, I, I would love to be able to give a lot more time to my kids and, um, you know, coach them in sports, uh, as they grow up. Um, so am I creating a structure, um, within my entrepreneurship that supports that, or am I just putting a lot more on my plate that that's not going to allow me, um, to do that because, um, you know, as most entrepreneurs would say, you know, a nine to five isn't for me. So instead I work 24 <laughs> seven. Right. So, so, um, so it's, it's um, being an entrepreneur has its benefits. Um, but at the same time, you, you I mean, it's absolute that you have some guardrails in place um, that are guiding you towards, you know, some sort of um, goal. And it's usually time related, right? Usually entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs because they want some, they want some time back. Um, so you got to make sure that at some point you get that time back. Uh, cause you know, for a while there I was working, uh, you know, 15 hour days for six months straight. And I was like, this, you know, why don't I just get a, a nine to five and I have, I'll have this time that I'm seeking. So, yeah. um, so it's really, it's really about time. That's that's a great point that you make where it's just like kind of I'm two years into the entrepreneur game and like it's just that balance is is a real thing. Right. Because like there's a level when you start stacking those bricks at the beginning, you know, like you said, it's like, oh, this seems worth it. And it's like, like I me, mean, I do that too. I'm like, all right, let's, let's go up this Mount Everest. Like I, I really enjoy right. getting to the top of mountains. Right. Whether it's hiking or whatever the case may be. So there is something once you deem the top of the mountain worthy of going up. 
Like I can, I, I found myself in that too. It was like, man, how many things am I doing? Like, all right, let's, let's kind of condense sure. it. So <laughs> I love the fact that you said that because that's the point we all want to get back is time and trying to maximize that time going through the sports ecosystem because you take up so much of your time getting in there. So using that as an acceleration right. point to kind of go from where you're going and not taking a step back and kind of falling off the wagon and different things. So that's exactly what we're trying to do here. So we know that the entrepreneurial path isn't for everyone, right? You know, what type of athlete do you think should follow your path or look into the entrepreneurial route? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think being an entrepreneur, especially if you're, if you're going into businesses where you have um, people reporting to you, have employees, um, you know, that's a little bit different than being an entrepreneur as a photographer, um, you know, who's, you know, I'm a one man show or it's me and my wife, even, you know, that's the team, that's it. Um, you know, it's a lot different than what, where I am now and actually, um, you know, being in a leadership role and, you know, having to, you know, direct and have team meetings and lead those meetings um, and things like that. So, you know, I, I do think that it, it starts with a, with a want to. Um, you know, if you're an athlete that, you know, has never been a team captain, um, you know, but sees themselves as a leader and wants to be a leader, um, then, you know, there might be some skill sets that you need to learn or, or don't know yet that you need to learn. Like even for myself, um, I was never a team captain, um, you know, at Penn State, um, you know, it's, it's something that, um, I don't know if I necessarily wanted to be or not, uh, let's put it that way. But, uh, but right now I'm in a position to, to lead and, um, you know, need to be vocal. Like if I was a leader at Penn state, it wasn't a vocal one. It was somebody that led by example and, uh, and all that. So, so learning that I, is, has been good. I definitely, I appreciate you saying that because I, I definitely viewed you. I mean, like you say you weren't a captain. I wasn't a captain at Penn state, but I viewed you as somebody that kind of beats their own drum in an admirable way, right? Like, it was like, sure. right, does it really matter what's going on? Like, Jordan's going to do what Jordan's going to do. Like, there's a level of, like, believing in your ideas, doing what you need sure. to do, regardless of what. And I kind of, I admired it because, like, that's how I operate. So it's like right. that level of, you know, whether it's the vocal leader, sometimes in football, that that typecast of, like, oh, this is what a leader looks like. Someone that's yelling, someone that's right. doing this. And just, that's thought that was something that was cool at Penn State that everyone can kind of you had to have a level of self-sacrifice to kind of get within. So you had to, you really had to kind of find your place within there and be comfortable in, in that, in your skin, to be completely honest, right? That's why you see right. a lot of guys, we were clean cut there and then we leave and you, the gambit's all over, but everyone's very specific to who they are. Like they know, they know self to an extent. Like, and right. I always appreciate that. And I think that's kind of what you're pointing out in, Cause I had that, like, I guess it would be impossible. So I'm like, I wasn't a captain. I'm not a leader. So I mean, not a, like, all that. So I need to do something that's just solo instead of like kind of getting to the right. point where you so photographer to like building community. Now it's like, I got to right. lead these people, decisions and different things of that nature. So I love that, man. So we did so much in your career, obviously, man, continue to go at this young, young age as an entrepreneur executive, the whole nine. What's the career end goal? Oh man. I mean, the, the end goal is, is like I said, to have, have my days be, um, you know, filled with, with the joy of my wife and kids. Um, and, you know, hopping on a meeting here and there to, you know, just check some things off. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, honestly, I would love to, um, you know, pour back into my community, uh, and by my community, having grown, having moved, moved around so much growing up, um, you know, really trying to make Denver into, you know, a place that I can call home that, um, you know, my kids can call home. Like we, we support our Broncos and, and Rockies and Nuggets, right? Like have a home team, which I never had growing up. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to make this place home. And, um, you know, from a business standpoint, hopefully I can scale, uh, scale the businesses that I have right now into, uh, whether it's real estate or, you know, uh, the NFTs and blockchain businesses um, scale them to a point where I can be more hands off and, um, you know, again, really just enjoy time with my family and friends and travel. That's it, man. That's a, a great, that's a, that's a great end goal there. And that makes all the worth, all the work worth it at the end of the day, right. being an entrepreneur and going through it. Like that's kind of what pushes you to do the 16 hour day. So 
Malouz, check it out, man. Just really appreciate you joining, jumping on to the Blue Chip Academy. A lot of, again, a lot of gems in the blueprint, right? Everyone's path doesn't start the same. Everyone's critical uh, transition points aren't the same, but it's just the the critical factors of what you go through, right? Kind of understanding your passions, understanding what's, what you're passionate about when you're transitioning out of the, uh, out of the game into maybe entrepreneurial right. spirit or into corporate America, whatever that case may be. And just remember looking for the information when you're going through the process so you can set yourself up for success, right? That's one thing that he talked about going through there. He had a critical advantage of being a coach's kid, understanding the business and just the more you can do and the range that he brought to every organization being a desirable asset, which makes him be able to say that, hey, I was 5'10", 170, ran 4'6", and played eight years in the NFL. So there's a lot of things when you see those different measurables and things of that nature, like kind of find out what are the critical factors that make those things happen that you can kind of implement now because the business starts 13, 14 years old. So that would be it. And guys, remember, like and subscribe this video and um, download the recruiting checklist. And anytime we've got the Football Business Masterclass and again, doing free consults if you have any needs or frustrations when the recruiting process and just need a little bit of uh, guidance. I mean, Holler will put the link at the bottom. Joran, thank you so much for jumping on to the Blue Chip Academy podcast, man. Hey, thanks Sign a lot. For ha- it's it's great, to, great to catch up with you, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Blue Chip Academy. To help navigate the recruiting waters, LIG Sports Group put together a Blue Chip Recruiting Checklist. Download your checklist at LIGsports.com Blue Chip Academy to ensure you're making informed decisions through this process. Hit subscribe and check out the LIG Sports Group Football Ops and Recruiting YouTube channel, where we'll talk about the recruiting and other critical points in the football ecosystem. If you're feeling stressed, confused, or just want help putting together a blue chip blueprint for you and your son, don't hesitate to book a console call with me at LIGsports.com backslash Blue Chip Academy. Remember, everyone has a different journey. Keep sharpening and remember that you can only go to one school. Just make sure that you have your blue chip blueprint together and execute it. Life is good.